Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Unexplained Season 4, Episode 8, Death's Pale Flag, Part 2. Stepping off the plane, Davis was hit instantly by the humidity and thick warm air, a startling contrast to the dry coolness of Boston. With only a few weeks to get to the bottom of the zombie phenomenon, he swiftly made his way to the hotel in Port-au-Prince, before making a phone call to the residence of his first contact, Max Beauvoir. The 45-year-old Beauvoir was born in Haiti and later educated in the United States and France, where he studied chemistry, eventually settling in Massachusetts to work as a chemical engineer. The death of his father, however, led him back to his homeland, where in 1973 he trained to become a voodoo priest also known as a Haungan. The next year, Beauvoir established a temple in his home, which had since become known for the elaborate voodoo ceremonies he conducted there. Pulling up to Beauvoir's home, Davis was greeted by the man himself, dressed sharply in a white linen shirt. Having been expecting the young ethnobotanist, Beauvoir showed Davis around his house before offering him a seat in the garden to discuss the matter at hand. Beauvoir was intrigued by Davis and Klein's assumption that it was some kind of potion or poison that enabled the zombie state of which they had heard so much. You don't agree, asked Davis. Beauvoir smiled to himself in response and looked off into the palm trees that surrounded his garden. If you're trying to find a poison, Mr. Davis, you will be a long time looking for it. As Beauvoir went on to explain, it wasn't a poison that created the zombie state. It was the magic of the Bokor, the voodoo sorcerer, that created it. Beauvoir laughed at the look of surprise on Davis's face and invited him to a ceremony he was conducting in his home that night. Perhaps then, he thought, 
Davis might get a better idea of just what exactly he was dealing with. Later that night, after arriving at Beauvoir's home, Davis was whisked through to a dark, torch-lit courtyard, crammed full of people from every corner of the earth. From simple tourists to academics and even some French sailors who had newly arrived at the local port, all had come to witness the ceremony for which Beauvoir had become increasingly infamous. Davis was led toward a table at the back at which Beauvoir was sitting. Nodding to his guest to take a seat, Davis was just about to speak when the frantic shaking of a rattle was heard from the other side of the courtyard. Moments later, a houndsis appeared, a female initiate of the temple, followed by a mambo, a voodoo and priestess, and together they began an elaborate ritual to invoke the voodoo spirits. Moments later, Beauvoir himself got up to join them. Holding his own rattle aloft, he proceeded to deliver a prayer, shaking the rattle as he read. An ominous thumping of drums soon followed as more initiates joined the throng who seemed to quickly become taken over by the rhythm until finally one of them appeared to become possessed by a spirit. Davis watched in astonishment as she tore across the courtyard, lifting men into the air, chewing down on glass tumblers and at one point tearing the head off a live dove with her bare teeth. The ceremony continued throughout the night, becoming increasingly chaotic before finally ending with one supposedly possessed initiate taking a hot coal from an open fire and keeping it in her mouth for over three minutes. Davis left soon after, utterly perplexed by what he had seen. Though he had little doubt that Beauvoir's shows were greatly hammed up for the tourists who paid good money to see them, what he couldn't deny was that he had just seen a woman holding a burning piece of coal in her mouth for three minutes without injury. The following morning, Davis rose early, his thoughts still consumed by the events of the previous night. Having spoken to Beauvoir, only to be left with more questions than he had before, it was time to pay a visit to the Bocor, Marcel Pierre. Back in the early 50s, the BBC had been making a documentary about Haitian culture and had managed to convince Pierre to provide them with some voodoo poison. It was this poison that Dr. Klein had tested on rhesus monkeys, finding it to have severe paralysing properties, which he also believed to be the most likely source of the zombie myth. Travelling with Beauvoir's daughter Rachel as an interpreter, Davis made his way out of the docks at Port-au-Prince and headed north into the countryside. After two hours travelling through thick green cane fields and scrublands, they arrived at the small coastal town of Saint-Marc. As a local bocor, Marcel Pierre was well known for offering a range of different services, provided the price was right. Though it wasn't one he was especially open about, it was believed that creating zombies was just one such service. Arriving at his house just after midday, Rachel explained to Pierre 
that Davis was a very discreet and influential man from New York who was hoping to procure his services. Having convinced Pierre that he was legitimate and that he was willing to pay any price, the Bocor eventually agreed to let the pair into his home. As Davis explained, he was interested specifically in the potion used to make a zombie and wondered if it might be possible to see an example of it. Pierre paused for a moment, then beckoned for the pair to follow him, leading them through his house and into his makeshift temple come apothecary at the back of it. The room was small and almost completely unlit, at the centre of which stood an altar covered in lots of different artefacts. Strange things were littered about the place, including bright-coloured powders in jars, an abundance of feathers, and a variety of dolls' heads, as well as three skulls, one being a dog, and the other two, human. Picking up a small bottle containing some kind of oil, he poured it onto his hands and other exposed body parts, asking the others to do the same. Then, he plucked a small white bottle from a shelf, wrapped a cloth around his mouth and nose, then showed them the light brown powder inside it. Returning to the front of the house, Pierre gave his price for the full service, as well as making the potion, and then the zombie. Davis agreed to the price, on one condition, that he be allowed to watch Pierre putting the potion together. Though reluctant at first, Pierre nodded back in agreement. Having arrived early at Pierre's home the next day, Davis and Rachel Beauvoir were taken to a local cemetery. However, since Davis had no formal permission to be there, two local military guards prevented the group from entering. Unsure what they were doing there in the first place, Pierre explained that the first ingredient they needed was a sample of human bone. It wouldn't be a problem, however, since he had plenty to go around back at his home. For the rest of the day, the three travelled about the local countryside, procuring the various items needed to make the zombie potion. Having bought various multicoloured talcs from a local chemist and gathered some leaves from a vacant field, the three of them eventually returned to Pierre's temple. There, Davis watched carefully as Pierre measured out the ingredients grinding them down in a pestle and mortar before topping it all off with some shavings of human skull. A short time later, he handed the ethnobotanist a small jar of dark green powder. Returning to Max Beauvoir's house later that day, the Haungun confirmed what Davis already knew. The powder was completely useless. It was a scam concocted by Pierre, for gullible westerners looking for the apparent zombie potion. Having thought a little more on Dr. Klein's theory that some kind of natural, possibly plant-based substance was responsible for the zombie effect, Davis wondered if it had something to do with the Datura plant, a plant well known to be psychoactive that was commonly used in West Africa as a stupefying poison. Davis also knew that the effects of Datura could be neutralised by the calabar bean, 
which might explain how the apparent zombies were first created and then supposedly resurrected. Despite spending the next few days searching high and low for any sign of those plants, Davis found little evidence for them. Having spent almost a week by now in Haiti, Davis felt no closer to finding what he came for. It was time to get in touch with the last of Dr. Klein's contacts, the psychiatrist and his former student, Lamarck Doyoun. Since studying under Klein, Doyoun had risen to become Haiti's leading psychiatrist and often found his Western medical training clashing with Haitian culture, and rarely more so than on the topic of zombies. Like most Haitians, as a child, Doyoun had been equally terrified and fascinated by the stories of the brain-dead creatures stalking the land. However, he had never once believed it to be anything other than just old folk tales. All that changed when he enrolled at McGill University. It was at McGill, under the guidance of controversial psychiatrist Professor Ewan Cameron, that many of the CIA's MKUltra trials were conducted. Project MKUltra was the codename given to a program of experiments undertaken by the United States' highly secretive Central Intelligence Agency. Though the CIA have now admitted to the existence of the program, there is doubtless much about it that we will never know. What is known, however, was that the project was a mind-control program, utilising the use of psychotropic drugs, often using large quantities of LSD to conduct brainwashing experiments. These experiments were conducted largely on human test subjects, and Doyoun is thought to be one of the many researchers who participated in the programme. What Doyoun observed during these experiments reminded him precisely of the accounts he had heard of zombies since he was a child. It was only then that he realised the stories might not be completely bogus after all. Though he had little time for the supernatural, like Klein, Doyoun believed it could well be possible that some kind of agent was being used to dramatically slow a victim's metabolism to make them appear dead. The victim could then even be buried for a few hours before somehow being reawakened later on. Doyoun's best guess was that it had something to do with what locals referred to as the zombie cucumber. Davis recognised this immediately as another term for the datura plant. Despite Doyoun and Klein's theory, Davis was beginning to wonder if the whole zombie phenomena wasn't just a myth after all. At that, Doyoun left the room, reappearing moments later with two of his current patients, suggesting that they might be the best people to talk about it. One was a middle-aged woman, whom Doyoun introduced as Femme T. The other, Davis recognised instantly from the Polaroid he had been given back in Dr. Klein's apartment. It was none other than Clavius Narcisse. That afternoon, Davis sat quietly as Clavius tried his best to explain just what exactly had happened to him. 
Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Back in April 1962, Clavius had rarely been sick in all his life, when one morning he felt suddenly weak and nauseous, and by the afternoon he was struggling to breathe. Realising he was in serious trouble, he arranged a lift to the nearest hospital. On arrival, by which time he was now coughing up blood, he was rushed through to a bed and immediately examined by the doctors. Despite being unable to diagnose his symptoms, Clavius was admitted straight away and treated for a pulmonary edema and hypertension. As his condition got worse over the next few days, Clavius began to feel as if he were drifting continually in and out of a dream, until finally he found that he could no longer move at all. At some point, though he couldn't see or feel anything, he was able to hear the doctors rushing about his bed before coming to a stop suddenly. Then he heard a voice pronouncing him dead. Next, he heard the sound of someone weeping, recognising it as his younger sister, who had been sat at his bedside the whole time. Clavius had vague recollections of being lifted and placed into a box, then feeling something tugging at his face. He later discovered this to have been a nail driven into the coffin lid and all the way through his cheek. Soon after that was a peculiar sensation of floating down, followed by hearing the clattering of what he later realised was shovel loads of dirt raining down on top of him. At some point, Clavius became aware that he was no longer underground. Pulled up into fresh air, he was beaten and bundled into a vehicle, then driven to a plantation 30 miles to the north of where he had been buried. Clavius then claimed he toiled away for years as a slave on the plantation, from sunset to sunrise, surviving only on just one meal a day, alongside a host of other zombies just like himself. Though he missed his home and family desperately, he seemed incapable of making any decisions for himself, It was like he had been suspended in a permanent nightmare. It wouldn't be until ten years later that Clavius finally managed to escape after one of the captives killed the Bokor who was running the plantation. With their master gone, the captives, in their various lethargic states, slowly dispersed and eventually found their ways home. 
As his senses slowly came back to him, Clavius realized that it was most likely his brother, who he had fallen out with over a land dispute, that had been responsible for turning him into a zombie. It wasn't until he found out his brother had died that Clavius was finally able to return home. It was clear to Davis that Clavius and Fem T, whose own story was equally harrowing, were not making any of it up. Having relayed his findings to Max Beauvoir, only to again be frustrated by the Houngan's unwillingness to divulge more information, Davis decided to pay Marcel Pierre another visit. Finding Pierre at a local bar that he owned in Saint-Marc, Davis accused him of making a bogus potion for him and questioned whether he was a real bocor at all. Angered by the slight, Pierre offered Davis another vial of the apparent potion, challenging him to apply it to himself if he really thought he was a charlatan. Davis duly obliged, pouring the powder onto his arm, only to pull it away at the last minute without Pierre noticing. Impressed by Davis's show of courage, Pierre relented and agreed to show him how it was really made. Shortly after midnight, just to the north of Saint-Marc, with the rumble of thunder coming from somewhere within the dark, thick clouds above, Davis, Pierre and three of his helpers made their way to a nearby cemetery. As lightning flashed intermittently in the sky above, one of the helpers, Jean, brought a spade down into the earth and proceeded to shovel away at it, until finally a small coffin was revealed having been buried there only a month or so before. Inside it lay the decomposed body of a small child, still wearing the bonnet and dress she had been buried in. Three days later, now back in Pierre's temple, Davis watched as Jean crushed the skull of the dead infant and placed the pieces in a jar. Davis returned again later that night as Pierre prepared a grill which was then lit on fire. Pouring alcohol over his skin, Pierre then set that alight too and instructed the others to do the same. Jean placed the jar of skull pieces on the ground next to the grill, while Pierre pulled a sack down from a nearby table and removed from it two freshly killed lizards and a large dead toad which had been flattened and dried. Wrapped around its leg, appeared to be some kind of dried sea snake, all of which was placed on top of the grill, added to which were two types of fish, of which Davis recognised one as a puffer fish. The bones of the child's skull were then placed over the hot coals and roasted until they turned black. As the various elements cooked, Jean took a human tibia from the side and grated it into a cup before adding it to a large pestle and mortar along with the pieces of all the cooked ingredients. Finally, some plants were added to the mix, a species of albizia, known as cha-cha in Haiti, and the other being one known locally as the itching pea. As Jean pounded at the mixture, Pierre, who never once touched it, lay back in the shade and shouted out instructions. With the mixture almost ready, he began to sing until the process was complete. 
having carefully noted down everything he'd seen, Davis was satisfied he had everything he needed to take back to Klein, with the exception of one thing. If this was the potion that induced the death-like state, what did Pierre use as the antidote to bring the victims out of it and keep them zombified? But Pierre was confused. The only antidote he made was to stop people falling victim to the poison, such as what they had rubbed on themselves before they put the ingredients together. There was no antidote. As Pierre went on to explain, after the poison was administered and the victim had appeared to have died, the Bacor merely entered the cemetery and called out the victim's name. It was their power alone that resurrected the victims and turned them into zombies. Realising he had now got all he could from Pierre, Davis thanked him for the potion and returned to his hotel. A few days later, he was back at Harvard, clutching the vial of powder which he hoped might finally give them some answers. After detailing everything he'd discovered to Dr. Klein, the pair set about trying to isolate what ingredient might be responsible for manifesting the zombie symptoms. The itching pea plant was known to have psychoactive seeds, which were also used in Colombia to treat cholera and parasites. The other plant, Albizia lebek, was known to have been used as a fish poison by some tribes in West Africa. But more significantly, it could also interfere with respiration. The lizards and the sea snake, which turned out to be a worm, had no apparent psychoactive properties. The toad, however, which was identified as a bufo marinus, was highly venomous. Its secretions not only contained powerful heart stimulants that could have been responsible for Clavius's hypertension, but was also potentially hallucinogenic. None of which was particularly revelatory to Davis and Klein. Certainly there was nothing there that could account for the extraordinary experience detailed by Clavius and other apparent sufferers of zombification. But then they discovered something else. It had been almost a week since Davis sent the fish off to be analysed, but it was well worth the wait. Though one of them was completely irrelevant, the other, which was indeed a puffer fish, was found to contain high levels of tetrodotoxin, a highly effective nerve toxin. In fact, according to the analyst who had picked it up, if you're looking for something to induce paralysis in a human, there was nothing stronger. Though Davis hadn't thought about it at the time, there existed a vast number of accounts of pufferfish poisoning, with most coming from Japan, where the fish, known there as fugu, is considered a high delicacy. In preparing fugu, chefs are supposed to remove most of its poison to make it non-lethal, while leaving just enough to create a mild sense of euphoria when eating it. It doesn't always go to plan. Tetrodotoxin is thought to be 160,000 times stronger than cocaine, while a single pinhead-sized dose of it is 500 times stronger than cyanide. Victims of fugo poisoning at least those who are fortunate enough to survive it, will remain completely paralysed for hours, unable to speak or move 
despite being conscious the entire time. Furthermore, some individuals having entered such a state are known to have been certified dead, even being nailed into coffins before suddenly seeming to miraculously revive. Davis was ecstatic. It seemed finally they had solved the mystery of how someone might appear dead, only to be later resurrected. Davis speculated that the poison could be easily rubbed onto a victim's skin, leading to feelings of nausea and difficulty in breathing within hours. Within six hours, a victim's metabolism could be so significantly lowered that their vital signs become indistinguishable from death. There was only one problem. None of this explained how an individual, having been poisoned, was then turned into an apparent zombie. Though Davis had his theories, he would ultimately never discover the answer. Despite having countless opportunities to witness the apparent resurrection ceremony, there was always the possibility he would merely have been witnessing an expensive con trick. Or worse, that by requesting to see it, he would then be responsible for turning someone into a zombie. A few years after returning from his first trip to Haiti, Wade Davis detailed the full account of his experiences there in his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was also used as the basis for Wes Craven's fictional horror film of the same name. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 